Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Trump says China is now moving troops reacting to the protests in Hong Kong. The lead starts right now. Riot police clashing with protesters who are crippling the airport in Hong Kong and breaking today how China may be responding by possibly moving troops and also refusing to let the U.S. Navy dock there. After back-to-back gun massacres, President Trump today insisting that the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is in favor of expanded background checks for gun purchases, but McConnell's own office is saying, whoa, not so fast. Plus... Just moments ago, Dayton police revealing brand new surveillance video and new details about what the gunman did before he murdered his his sister and eight others. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our world lead as absolute chaos takes over one of the busiest airports in the world. One protester compared it to war today as hundreds faced off with riot police bringing to a halt The airport in Hong Kong, the semi-autonomous region off the southeast coast of China, canceling flights, stranding travelers, causing violence. Our reporters on the ground described an ugly and violent scene. Protesters beating at least one person they believed to be an undercover police officer and then refusing to allow that individual first aid. This is just the latest in nearly three months of protests in Hong Kong against the government closely aligned with China and a proposed bill, legislation, that would have allowed extradition from Hong Kong to mainland China. While Hong Kong is a part of China, it's governed under a special political system with greater freedoms. This afternoon, China denying requests for two U.S. Navy ships to make port visits in Hong Kong later this month, visits that were previously scheduled. President Trump weighed in on the violence this afternoon and disappointed those who had hoped the president would condemn China and the Hong Kong government and stand in solidarity with the protesters. I hope it works out for liberty. I hope it works out for everybody, including China. I hope it works out peacefully. I hope nobody gets hurt. I hope nobody gets killed. CNN's Paula Hancox is live for us at the Hong Kong International Airport. And Paula, what's the situation there right now? Well, Jake, it's 4 a.m. right here, so the protesters have gone home. The question is, though, what will they do later today? It's Wednesday here already. Will they return here to the airport to try and uh, and, and shut down uh, the the airport once again for a third day running? Now, just hours ago, we saw some dramatic images here. We saw riot police and protesters clashing at one of the world's busiest airports. Chaos at one of the world's busiest airports. Protesters barricading themselves behind a wall of luggage carts and chairs as they clash with riot police at the Hong Kong International Terminal entrance with batons and pepper spray. One officer appears to pull out his pistol after protesters overpowered him, grabbing his baton and using it against him. After several minutes, police start retreating. Their arrival by the busload created a window for paramedics to rescue a man who had passed out after protesters accused him of being an undercover cop. 
It's the second consecutive day. Thousands of Hong Kong activists have forced this massive international hub to cancel all outbound flights. Sparking anger and frustration from stranded travellers, the scenes at the airport highlighting the intensity of the moment for the people of Hong Kong. Today, President Trump reacting to the powerful images. The Hong Kong thing is a very tough situation, very tough. We'll see what happens, but I'm sure it'll work out. I hope it works out for everybody, including China. This is the 11th straight week of protests which have brought this region, with its two starkly different political systems, to a screeching halt. It all started because of a proposed law that would allow accused criminals to be extradited to mainland China, which activists say would let the Chinese government target political enemies. But now that bill has been suspended, but not formally withdrawn, and protesters' anger has spread to the perceived excessive violence by police. China has taken the demonstrations as a direct challenge to its rule, sending tanks to the border and demanding protesters back down. Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, who backs the bill, says Hong Kong is no longer safe due to the mass protests. The rioters have pushed Hong Kong to the brink of no return. And we're also hearing some stronger words from China, a top official in Beijing saying these protests now show signs of terrorism. Jake. All right. Paula Hancock's at the Hong Kong airport. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Gordon Chang. He wrote the book, The Coming Collapse of China, and is also a columnist for the Daily Beast. He's written extensively about the relationship between Beijing and Hong Kong. Gordon, thanks for joining us. This is now the 10th straight week of these protests, which started back in June. Why do you think they've been able to last so long? Well, I think that most people in Hong Kong two-thirds, maybe three-quarters, actually believe that this is the last stand. This is the where they protect their homeland, they protect their autonomy. You know, Beijing has been encroaching on that one country, two systems formula that was promised in 1997 when Britain handed China, uh, Hong Kong to China. So it's really a feeling across society that this is where that they determine their future. These protesters are, are, are taking on the very powerful Chinese government. What are the potential repercussions for the protesters? Well, the repercussions could very well be that the Chinese send in the People's Armed Police or the People's Liberation Army. Right now, Chinese leaders are in Beidaha, the resort cl close to Beijing. And this is what they do most August. Um, and if they follow the pattern, they'll be uh, ending the meeting in about three or four days, about the end of this week. So we may find the Chinese actually moving then. I don't think so, Jake. I think that they're going to wait a lot longer because they realize the repercussions of doing something. But nonetheless, we're at a point where Beijing could make a decision. What do you read into the announcement uh, that the U.S. Navy, which had previously arranged uh, to dock in Hong Kong later this month, has been told uh, that they cannot anymore? Well, Beijing normally will do this when they're upset at the United States. They will cancel port visits or they will cancel reciprocal visits of high-ranking military officers. Um, obviously, they don't want the U.S. Navy there if they think they're going to bring in the People's Armed Police. And there are all of those images that President Trump referred to of the PAP massing in Shenzhen, which is just across the border from Hong Kong. So uh, clearly, um, they want to be able to control the battlefield. I see a lot of people uh, in social media and around the world uh, calling for President Trump uh, to signify that he stands in solidarity with these protesters. Uh, if he did that, would it make any sort of difference? 
It would make things better, Jake. Um, you know, I'm sure President Trump's getting sort of advice that, you know, you should not do anything to aggravate Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler. But the point is, Beijing has already vilified, demonized the United States. In the middle of May, it declared a people's war on us. So there's nothing that we can do to make the Chinese go away or make this situation better. We need to stand for our values. And clearly at this point, when you've got protesters who are waving the star spangled as the stars and stripes and they're singing our national anthem, we've got to stand with them because they're the front line of freedom. We've got a common foe, Jake. China is attacking the protesters. China's also attacking our democracy. So we have an interest in supporting them. You mean through cyber, they're, the way they're attacking the democracy? No, I mean, almost every day you have People's Daily and other state media attacking the form of government that we have and actually criticizing the U.S., going after democracies and democracy itself. So um, this is a broad-based challenge to our form of government and to our sovereignty. So it's important for us to understand what the Chinese are doing. They, they, do, they don't want to just run a totalitarian system in China itself. They want to make sure that that system is safe, and they believe that democracies elsewhere endanger their form of government. And you say the end of this week could be significant as we watch these protests. What happens then? That's when the Beidangha meeting will conclude if they follow the pattern of previous years. Normally, they, wait, they meet for about two weeks, and that would put it towards the end of this week when they wrap up. There you have not only all the senior Chinese leaders, but you also have former leaders. So this is a conclave where the lot is discussed, and obviously Hong Kong is going to be at the top of the agenda, as will the trade war with the United States in relations with Washington. So this is a consequential time for the leadership. Xi Jinping can come out of the Beidaha meeting strengthened, or he could come out with a lot less power than when he went in. All right, Gordon Chang, thank you so much for your, uh, your expertise. Appreciate it. President Trump says he's on the same page as the Senate Majority Leader when it comes to potential new gun legislation. But Mitch McConnell's office is saying, no, we're not. Plus, we've got some breaking news now. New surveillance video just released by Dayton police tracing the path of that city's horrific mass murderer. And that's ahead. In our politics lead now, today President Trump is again claiming that he and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, along with many Senate Republicans, are on board with expanding background checks for gun sales in the wake of 31 people murdered in back-to-back -back mass shootings in the United States. Yet, as CNN's Phil Mattingly now reports, McConnell's staff has made it pretty clear that the Majority Leader does not endorse such a proposal. It's now the time for Mitch McConnell and President Trump to do something. House Democrats today ramping up the pressure on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and President Trump to tighten gun laws. What takes courage is to look a special interest group in the eye and say enough is enough. President Trump insisting McConnell and Republicans back measures to expand background checks for gun purchases. He wants to do it, I think, very strongly. He wants to do background checks, and I do too, and I think a lot of Republicans do. But McConnell aides make clear the Kentucky Republican hasn't endorsed any specific background check legislation. And he's rejected calls to bring the Senate back early from its summer recess. We just have people scoring points and nothing would happen. There has to be a bipartisan discussion here of what we can agree on. Instead, tasking three committee chairmen to work through their own proposals on gun violence to be taken up when the Senate returns in September. 
And GOP aides also make something else clear to CNN. The end game, to the extent there is one, lies with the president. One senior Republican aide telling CNN, tell me where he lands on the policy, and I'll tell you what we're debating in September. Democratic lawmakers trying to take advantage of the momentum, now pressing a dual-pronged approach. House Democrats calling on the Republican-led Senate to vote on a House-passed background checks measure, and Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer asking the Trump administration to withdraw its $5 billion request for border wall funding and instead reallocate it toward programs combating violent extremism, domestic terrorism, and gun violence research. For his part, the president has continued a series of calls with lawmakers involved in the gun issue, including some staunchly opposed to GOP positions. He certainly um, uh, believes that uh, there is a deal to be had on what he calls a meaningful background check bill. Uh, The devil's in the details as to what he means about that. And Jake, the Democratic push today comes as one aide acknowledged to me, quote, time is our enemy. And there's good reason for that position based on history and also this. GOP aides acknowledge there's growing skepticism right now that there's anything substantive, be it background checks or even red flag laws that can actually get through the Senate at this point. Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. We have our experts with us. Amanda, I'm going to ask you a question. You might not know the answer because it's 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 trying to explain President Trump's behavior. But why do you think he keeps saying that Mitch McConnell's on board with background checks, given that McConnell's office keeps saying, no, he isn't. He hasn't agreed to anything. Because it sounds good. Theoretically, I mean, in the past, votes have come to the floor. I'm thinking of Toomey Mansion in 2013. These things have been discussed. But where I sort of see this is going nowhere, nobody's talking about specifics. Yeah, expanded background checks. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean online sales? Do you mean person-to-person sales? Do you talk about making the background checks more robust? Even these red flag laws, which I think people are broadly supportive of, I'm not sure what they mean. Are they talking only about taking away guns from people who are mentally unstable um, through the police or possibly taking other factors into consideration when you do the background checks, like a history of domestic violence without a conviction, expulsions from schools, mental health? And so there's this whole mess of information And everybody's just kind of saying, oh, yeah, we'll look at background checks. I have no idea what that means. And Mitch McConnell certainly isn't telling us. And and, uh, Ray, uh, take a listen uh, to Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. He's a vocal advocate for further restrictions on on gun ownership. He said he's pessimistic, but he's glad that the president's interested in background checks. I spoke to the president this weekend. Um, I I can't tell whether he is more sincere, but he certainly um, uh, believes that uh, there is a deal to be had. I know in the end, Republicans aren't going to support background checks legislation unless the president supports it. The only way that we get enough Republicans to get to 60 votes in the Senate is if the president is pushing them to get there. Do you think the president's willing to push on something like this? Using what currency? Using what persuasion? Where have we ever seen the president before ram something through using the power of his own personal prestige? I mean, if you're a Democratic legislator, you're glad the conversation's continuing and you can still, especially if you come from the state where Sandy Hook Elementary School was shot up, this is important to you and you're going to keep it front of of agenda. But is something really going to happen? Boy, I don't know. Doesn't look very likely, does it? Where do you think this is all going to go, if anywhere? Well, I think the prospects are very bleak. There's been no indication that either side uh, on Capitol Hill is closer to coming to some sort of agreement. Democrats still want 
to bring up the House passed bill that effectively makes background checks universal to the Senate floor, which is a non-starter with Republicans. And even if you talk about the Manchin-Toomey legislation that came up after Sandy Hook, which expanded background checks to private sales at gun shows as well as online, but did not include the vast majority of private deals and exempted family transfers, there's still no indication that that bill has any greater chance of passing today. Pat Toomey, the Republican co-sponsor, said he still thinks there's a lot of work to be done convincing his colleagues to come on board. Mm -hmm. And and then Democrats have, of course, said that these red flag bills that are being proposed by Republicans are toothless because they don't require that states adopt them. And frankly, even some Republicans are saying they don't want to touch this red flag legislation. So I just don't think we are any closer to a deal. And we've had this conversation many times before. And and Paul, I mean, if you look at President Trump's tweets today in which he's attacking uh, you know, a, a cable news host, one of our colleagues, uh, using the red flag law uh, gambit. It seems it doesn't really seem to suggest a whole lot of seriousness uh, about the red flag law, given that he's just using it 10 days after these horrific attacks to, to score political points. I know. And I would have thought that even President Trump, who's a bit of a narcissist, would have been changed by going to Dayton and to El Paso. I had to go with the president to, uh, to Andrews Air Force Base when, when uh, people murdered in a terrorist attack in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi came out. It changes you forever. It should. It should. The fact that he could mock legislation that might have had an effect, might not, if we can't say that anything would be a panacea, it's, it's really pretty shocking. Um, I have to say... Senator Schumer, I'm a Democrat. Senator Schumer seems like he's being a little too political for my taste by just saying, oh, take away his border funding, his wall. That's not going anywhere. If if Schumer really wanted to put the president on the horns of a dilemma, say, we'll give you your stupid wall. You give us serious protections against white supremacy, which is a much greater threat than any any refugee coming across the border is, and background checks and the rest of the uh, legislation passed by the House. That would put Trump on the horns of a dilemma. That would not just be political. That'd be, I think, great. Yeah, and I saw Fred Guttenberg, one of the one of the fathers from Parkland, really upset with the president right. uh, talking so mockingly about red flag laws because he thinks it could have potentially saved his daughter, Jamie. Everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about new information now about the Dayton shooters, final movements and who he was communicating with just an hour before the massacre. Some breaking news internationally. Just moments ago, police in Dayton released new video of the mass murderer there and his encounter with police. And we got our first minute by minute account, the timeline of how the massacre in Dayton, Ohio unfolded. Let's go straight to CNN's Gary Tuckman, who is in Dayton, Ohio. Gary, walk us through exactly what we just learned. Well, Jake, the surveillance video is very compelling from many different cameras in the area, and it captures a two-hour span on Saturday night and Sunday morning. It ends at 1.06 a.m. when the murderer is shot and killed by police. It's a violent scene. It lasted 32 seconds from when he started shooting until he was killed by some very alert and brave policemen here in Dayton, Ohio. But it started two hours earlier. He walked into a bar here in Dayton with his sister and a companion. Everything seemed normal on that video. But about an hour later, he walked out by himself out of the bar and he actually passed a policeman in a police car. He went to a parking lot and in the parking lot, he changed. He put on a hoodie. He put on a sweatshirt. He got a backpack which contained the AR-15 style rifle that he was about to use in the killing. 
Perhaps the most important thing that we have learned from this videotape is that police say, by looking at it, they have determined that it is very unlikely. They thought this before, but now they're sure that he did not have an accomplice, that he did this all by himself. He was all by himself from when he got his weapon until he carried out the killing. We also learned something interesting. As we know, he went to the bar with his sister and a companion. His sister was killed. The companion was wounded. It's still not known if he intentionally tried to kill those two people. Police are telling us at this point they still do not know the motivation, but they do know the mindset. They say that he was consumed with possibly carrying out a killing, and that's why he think, they think he did it, but they still don't know the motivation for doing it in this place on that night. Jake, back to you. All right, Gary Tuckman in Dayton, Ohio. Thank you so much. I want to bring in former SCIA and FBI official Phil Mudd uh, to talk about this. Phil, is there anything that you heard from Dayton police that stood out to you? Yeah, a couple things that we just all a moment ago. First, that confirmation we were talking about, about whether this was solo. The first question you got to have here is it's not just about what happened. It's an open investigation. You look at the video, nobody there. You got to get confirmation that it doesn't look like anybody operated with them. The, the second thing I'd say is it gives you a little bit of a picture of intent, the hardest thing to get, especially with a dead perpetrator. He didn't go in there accidentally. He's casing these places. I'd want to see things like credit card records to know how often he was in before. But it's hard to look at that, especially since he was speaking with his sister and not think that this was intentional. Okay, so it's about a week and a half since this horrific mass shooting. Uh, and police are still not offering any motive. They have a minute by minute account of his whereabouts that night. Is it possible we'll never really know the motive? Yeah, but remember, think of this as a layer cake. We just saw one layer. Layer over that emails. Presumably they looked at it, looked at his emails. Google searches, whether he's searching ideological sites, they should have his text messaging, which was referenced today. So we're knowing what he was saying right before, including the days before the event. And of course, interviews with friends and family. So you layer all those on top of each other with that timeline. They know more than they're telling us, but they, they don't have a clear picture yet, but they got to have a slightly better picture than what we see. I'd close by saying, I'm not sure they'll ever fully know, but we got to know a little more than we know right now because they've seen all that data. We still don't know the motive of the Las Vegas shooter. Yeah, that's right. Horrific shooting in this country. Uh, Phil Mott, thank you so much for your time. A possible presidential candidate heading to New Hampshire today, and he's not a Democrat. His warning for the Republican Party that President Trump may want to hear. I'm Mark Sanford. I come from the coast of South Carolina where we get storms that hit in the late summer. And I'm here to say that there's a big storm coming. A big storm coming, a warning of sorts in our 2020 lead. Former Republican governor and Congressman Mark Sanford is mulling a possible run against President Trump in the Republican primaries and delivering that message as he prepares to head to this early voting state of New Hampshire later today. And Governor Sanford joins me now from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Uh, Governor, you leave for New Hampshire in just a few hours. Uh, you don't have any public events. You have some private meetings. What's going to be the deciding factor as to whether or not you actually challenge President Trump? The continued input of people, whether up that way, which will be a different perspective, uh, or the perspective of a lot of folks that I've talked to here along the coast of South Carolina and across the state, which I represented, obviously, for eight years of my life as former governor. Um, and, and former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci uh, this week called for replacing President Trump on the Republican ticket. President Trump responded by attacking his former White House Communications Director on Twitter and also on the tarmac today. T take a listen to a, a little bit of it. I think Anthony is really somebody that's very much out of control and he doesn't have what it takes calling Scaramucci there out of control, saying he doesn't have what it takes. 
Do you think Republicans would really be willing to back a challenger to an incumbent president? Well, let's be clear. This hadn't happened in a long time. It was the uh, more than 100 years ago, the 21st president was the, the first guy not to get the nomination of his party. So um, Chester Arthur, of all, of all folks. But, but what I do think is important is a conversation, and you just don't know where it leads. And the people that have been encouraging me to do this have said, we need to have a conversation about what it means to be a Republican, because the bent that we've been moving toward here of late is not consistent with the, the, the values and the ideals that they've believed in for a very long time. One of those values, of course, is fiscal responsibility. The deficit is up 27 percent from uh, last year. The White House Office of Management and Budget predicts the deficit is going to exceed $1 trillion, trillion this year. You tweeted that the budget deal the president just signed was, quote, moving our country toward becoming a financial S-hole. Do you think Republicans, whether it's Republican voters or Republicans in Congress, do you think they actually care about fiscal responsibility or is this just posturing for years and years? Because we're not really seeing much evidence of it. Well, no, because, again, there's a disconnect between people at the elected level and what I've consistently heard over my 25 years in politics at the grassroots level. And so that, that small business person trying to keep their business afloat cares very much about the numbers. And the, the family struggling to make it, sitting there at the kitchen counter, trying to balance its family checkbook, very much cares about the numbers. And, and so I think at a grassroots level, this issue is real. People are disturbed by the fact that we have unprecedented levels of debt, unprecedented levels of deficit, and the highest spending on record. And this is, mind you, in a peacetime and benign economic environment. So I think that the issue is real, but it needs to be talked about. And what we've had is the three monkeys routine. We're in, I see no evil, I hear no evil, I speak no evil, by both Republicans and Democrats on the issue of spending and debt. When you talk about how voters, you talk to Republican voters, say that this party uh, is steering away from the Republican values that you're used to. Obviously, you're not only talking about fiscal responsibility. I imagine you're also talking about the tone and tenor of things that President Trump uh, says. Uh, he seems to be embracing a campaign strategy, strategy, at least partly based on dividing people, whether it's attacking uh, the four congresswomen, telling them to go back where they came from, even though uh, three of them were born in the United States and all four are American citizens. The attacks on Elijah Cummings, the attacks on Baltimore. Uh, now we see some very aggressive steps when it comes to uh, even um, trying to dissuade legal immigration. Uh, how do you view all of that? I, I think that to be conservative is to have trust in institutions that are all about balancing power in our political system. I think that to be conservative is to have a measure of conservatism in the way that you approach others, a, a humbleness of heart. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be meek, uh, but, but it does mean you don't pretend to be the bully in the local schoolyard. And, and what I'm hearing from folks here, at least on the coast of South Carolina where I come from, is a level of weariness with the, you know, the bully in the schoolyard routine. And you saw it in, in, frankly, my own congressional election, wherein for the first time in about 50 years, the seat went Democrat. And much of it was based on soccer moms and, and young millennials saying, this is just inconsistent with the message that my parents were, were, were giving me over the years or inconsistent with the message I've been trying to give my kids. So I think that something is afoot both on the financial front and, frankly, on the tone and tenor front. Former Republican Governor Mark Sanford from the great state of South Carolina, thanks so much for your time, sir. Uh, have fun and good luck on the campaign trail, if that's what it is, in New Hampshire. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. 
One 2020 presidential candidate is attacking the media. It's not Donald Trump. We'll tell you who it is next. Stay with us. Our 2020 lead now. While Joe Biden holds a strong lead in most of the polls, Senator Elizabeth Warren is picking up momentum and coming up right behind him. The most recent Monmouth University poll in Iowa shows her surging 12 points since April. She's now at 19 percent. That's second place. Biden's ahead at 28 percent. And after a week on the ground in one of the most critical states, CNN's Jeff Zeleny has this inside look now at Warren's strategy and approach, which, according to Obama's former political director, is a lot like the one Obama used to win in 2007-2008. Hello, Iowa State Fair! Elizabeth Warren is making a big summer splash in Iowa. But beyond the teeming crowds... Her campaign is building something that's even more impressive to many Democrats here, a muscular ground organization with a person-to-person network growing by the day in backyards like this. And it's great to be here at someone's home. I want to say a very special thank you to Drew and Kara. Where are you? There you are. Drew and Kara Kelso have been following the 2020 campaign closely, but not this closely until one of Warren's young organizers reached out and asked if they would host the Massachusetts senator. It was a great vibe. It was awesome to have her here. Um, the neighbors, everybody was excited that she was here. Do you plan to volunteer for her at all? Yeah, I mean, I think we would entertain the idea. I, I definitely support her enough to do that. Across town, Carrie DeVry is already a dedicated volunteer in Warren's Army. She hosts organizing events right here in her living room, where she even painted a campaign logo. Once I found Warren's campaign, then I felt like, oh, here's a place I can really feel like I'm making a difference. How many hours a week do you think you spend trying to elect Elizabeth Warren? Me? Yeah. (laughs) Probably more than most people. Probably 12 or 14 hours a week just doing different things. The Warren campaign started building an Iowa operation before any of its rivals, with eight field offices now open and more to come. The campaign has held organizing events in all 99 counties. Is there um, a chance that you and your wife might be interested in helping us out? Inside the Des Moines field office today, volunteers made calls and plans for future events. Emily Parcell is a senior advisor for Warren. Twelve years ago this summer, she was political director for Barack Obama. Because we built the best grassroots organization on the ground here in Iowa. People power from the bottom up. Whose winning Iowa campaign is still the aspiration for this crowded field of Democratic candidates. In my experience doing the Iowa caucus, you need to be here for a year. It's going to take time. Um, And... The interesting thing about this campaign, and I don't think it's unlike the Obama campaign, there's a real focus on building a community of supporters. Now, one thing that has changed dramatically since the summer of 2007, Jake, when Barack Obama began his rise, the advent, the invent, invention of social media. You'll remember from covering that campaign along with me, there was no Facebook, no Twitter, no social media. So that has changed everything dramatically. Now, talking to Democrats here all week long, virtually everyone says the Warren campaign is the strongest. They started the earliest. But also keep an eye on Pete Buttigieg. He's spending a lot of money here. Joe Biden, as well as Kamala Harris. All right. Former Des Moines Register reporter Jeff Zeleny in the in the great state of Iowa. Thanks so much. Uh, Let's chat about this with our experts. Uh, Ray, let me start with you. Uh, Warren, she's not really surging in the polls. It's been a a long, slow, steady climb. Um, What is she doing right, do you think? She's not changing from week to week. So the theory of the case that they had at the beginning, this is how we will get people to pay attention to us. She hasn't deviated. She is dismissed as wonky, so what? She goes out and explains complicated things, doesn't get distracted by nonsense, doesn't completely 
rejigger the campaign in panic every couple of weeks. This will, it's a long slog with a crowded field. She knows she doesn't have to win the early primaries, just has to, in a field of 20 candidates, just has to do respectably until people start to drop out. It's a, it looks like a very smart strategy because she's not one of the, I'll get in a good line at the debate and that will change everything kind of candidate. She's the one who gradually is an earworm that takes, <laughs> takes root. You, you're the, you're the conservative at the table. You've been bullish on Elizabeth Warren from the very beginning, to give you credit. What is, what is it about her that you think, do you agree with Ray? Well, right now, what I think is so interesting is that she's been able to survive a pretty tough political hit from Donald Trump, number one. But also, she's been able to rise and hold steady without getting her hands dirty. And that's what I think makes her a dangerous candidate in the primary, in that she is the one on the floor with the biggest ideas. So that naturally puts her opponents in the position of saying, no, you can't do that. You're dreaming too big. That's too ambitious. And we saw this play out in one moment in the debate stage where she says, well, why are we here? No one has a good answer to that. So she's owning the big idea, ambitious stage, and that's a very wonderful position to be in a primary. And contrasting that with Joe Biden, potentially in a one-on-one, where she is the one in command of the facts, not gaffing all the time, that's going to force a hard choice for the primary voter. And, Paul, um, a lot of the Elizabeth Warren voters are people that probably would have been supportive of Bernie Sanders, uh, people in that progressive lane. Uh, Sanders has been spending some time in the last day or so uh, talking about media bias, specifically about The Washington Post. He said that they don't cover him positively because he's criticized the owner of The Washington Post, uh, Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon. Now, he just spoke to CNN, uh, Sanders, and started to walk back on those comments. He still puts blame on the media. Take a listen. Oh, Jeff Bezos is on the phone telling the editor of The Washington Post what to do. Absolutely not. Whether Jeff Bezos gets on the phone to The Washington Post. There is a framework of what we can discuss and what we cannot discuss. Not one reporter has ever asked me, Bernie, what are you going to do about the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality? What's your take? Uh, Bernie needs, he's Luke Skywalker. He needs a Death Star. He had that in my friend Hillary. Okay, every day he knew what he was doing. He was going after the establishment and she represented everything he hated in the Democratic Party. It, it, It wasn't easy, but it was obvious. Now he doesn't have that. I thought he would do that with Joe Biden. Now, apparently, it's it's uh, Jeff Bezos, although he's kind of walking that back. It's like he needs Darth Vader and he he looks around. There's nothing but like Ralph Nader. You know, he's got to like have somebody to go after. I've done my share of media bashing. I'm not against it, but they they need to give me some specifics. They need to say, here's a story that was unfair because of Bezos. And you saw here he can't do that. And, And Bernie Sanders has certainly tried to make Joe Biden his target. Most of the attacks on his campaign have been directed at this notion that Biden is not the best representative of the Democratic Party, that he's not progressive enough going after his record. But what was challenging about the criticism that Bernie Sanders made is that he did not offer any evidence uh, to support the notion that the Washington Post in its coverage of him is somehow influenced by the fact that they're owned by Jeff Bezos and Sanders has been critical of Amazon. Therefore, they're not covering him appropriately. I think that, you know, now he's drawing, of course, comparisons to Trump. Those are overblown. One offhand comment is not the same as the president's sustained attack on the media. But to Paul's point, he's no longer the insurgent candidate. And he has had an indelible impact on the policy agenda of the current Democratic field. But he's having a strong he's struggling to distinguish himself in what is a very crowded field with many other candidates who are there to claim that progressive mantle. Yeah, it just this is a one off with Sanders. I mean, he is 
promoting ugly smears against the media, saying there is a profit motive that has influenced the coverage. It hasn't just been about the Washington Post. I've seen him do it to CNN, where he suggested that ads from Big Pharma are influenced the coverage with no evidence at all. His campaign surrogates have gone out and said it. He says it. It's a strategy, and it stinks. Well, we don't even see the ads, as you know. <laughs> We're yeah. just sitting here. Anyway, thanks. Uh, stick around. Uh, the little girl who was hysterical after her dad was arrested in an immigration raid. She just heard from her father for the first time since he was detained by ICE. CNN talks to the little girl's mother next. Stay with us. Anybody else, please, don't leave the child. In today's national lead, the Trump administration is not backing away from a new rule, making it harder for immigrants who rely on government assistance to come to this country legally. Today, the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Ken Cuccinelli, was asked about the Emma Lazarus iconic poem on the Statue of Liberty as part of the American ethos. And Cuccinelli changed the words a little bit. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Hours later, his boss, President Trump, seemed to back up that sentiment. I am tired of seeing our taxpayers paying for people to come into the country and immediately go on to welfare and various other things. So I think we're doing it right. That hardline approach as we get breaking news now about the father of that 11-year-old girl seen sobbing after ICE agents arrested her dad in a roundup of undocumented immigrants working at plants throughout Mississippi last week. I want to get to CNN's Diane Gallagher, who's in Jackson, Mississippi. Diane, you spoke with the girl's mother, who's been searching for her husband since last week. What have you learned? Yeah. Yeah, Jake, look, it's been almost a week since Magdalena, that 11-year-old girl's tearful plea for her father, went viral up until about two hours ago. She and her mother didn't even know where her father was. And CNN began talking about this story, the fact, and their search for him this morning. Hours later, they were able to narrow it down. And just a few, about an hour ago, she was able to talk to her husband, Juana, for the first time since he was detained. Uh, just watching this process, Jake, is something that so many Americans, especially all of those who were detained here in Mississippi from those workplace raids, have had to deal with. Online, the evidence and the information that she was given by authorities said her husband was in Louisiana, but didn't specify what detention center. She's been desperately trying to get in touch with him. Well, it turns out we were contacted by ICE. He's actually been in Mississippi this whole time, about two and a half hours from where she lives. That phone call came after we spoke with ICE a bit. They got them in contact with one another. And Juana tells me that it was so good just to hear from him, just to know that he's alive, Jake. There are so many other families, again, who are dealing with this right now. A reminder, we're talking about the U.S. government taking people here. Uh, and Diane, that girl's father, yeah. just one case out of the 680 arrests last week, more than 300 individuals are still detained. Have they accounted for everyone now? The U.S. government says that they have everyone in their custody and they know where they are. As far as if their families have been able to find them, Jake, we can't, we don't know that. We can't have any way of knowing how many can do that. Diane Gallagher in Jackson, Mississippi, thank you so much for that reporting. Are you a reminder, you can uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Jake Tapper. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thank you so much for watching.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.